Well, it's lovely to be here again tonight to open the Word to you. Uh, I hope you're well and you've had a good day. We had a lovely meal earlier. Now I hope we'll have a, uh, another meal now. <laughs> so could you turn with me to Psalm 24? Psalm 24. And again, I'll, I'll attempt to go through the whole psalm. Because... You can't have one bit without the other, really, you know. But if you want a text, verse 3, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Like I said earlier, we consider the anointed king this morning. In that grand second psalm, which introduces us, if you like, to the book of Psalms. And as we read through the book of Psalms again and again, the king comes back. The king returns in these psalms of enthronement, psalms of kingly power. And in Psalm 24, we have this image of the ascended king. The king who is lifted up. Now, most religions operate, this is a quote, this is not my eloquence, most religions operate on a vertical axis in which heaven or their analogue of that state is up and its opposite is down. To ascend, therefore, is in some fundamental way to approach divinity. Now, that's a travel book, believe it or not, on mountains written by Robert McFarlane, The Mountains of the Mind. Perhaps some of you have read it. Religions are fascinated, aren't they, with this idea of ascent. I, I don't know if any of you have been to Tibet. Big mountains there. And in Tibet, there's a mountain uh, called Mount Kailash, or Kailas, it's over 6,000 meters high. And it looks a bit like the sugar loaf in Abergavenny, but on steroids. And uh, you notice, if you went there, come with me now, and we're going. It's very high. You're on the plateau. You see the strange dome rising, otherworldly. And what do we see at the foot of that mountain? We see people going round and round and round. Some are on their knees. Some are using these um, funny wooden things to sort of get up, like a workout. Down and up, down and up, going around the mountain. Some are crawling and some are walking. And to give you an idea of the scale, we have about 70,000 pilgrims going round and round every year. 70,000. What you're seeing here is a form of pilgrimage to a holy mountain. But they are not allowed to be anywhere near the slopes. And you're definitely not allowed to be on the peak. No way, Jose. For Hindus, it is the home of the Hindu god Shiva. For Buddhists, the navel of the universe for Jains, it is 
I think that's how you say it. It's where their first leader was enlightened, and for adherents of Bon, the abode of the sky goddess, Men. This is a long illustration to begin, but it's important. Herbert Titchy, who was a climber, was in the area in 1936, attempting to climb Gurla Mandata, which is nearby. And he asked one of the local men of knowledge, he asked them, uh, do you think I can get up there? Do you think I can, oh, you know, can you sneak me in? <laughs> can you get me a special treatment? And do you know what his answer was, the expert from Tibet? He said, only a man entirely free of sin could climb Kailash. And he wouldn't have had to actually scale the sheer walls of ice to do it. He'd just turn himself into a bird and fly to the summit. Remember that story, okay? The Garpon's words are profound, aren't they? Our text is a similar question. Who shall ascend or climb the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place who he doesn't share with any other deity? Let me just pray quickly before we move to the text. Lord, anoint uh, this preaching now, Lord. We, we long, we long for you to be lifted. May the hearers to see yourself lifted, lifted, and oh, may they bow the knee as they see Christ lifted. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the psalmist here in Psalm 24, turn to your Bibles now, muses on the ascent of royal sovereignty, the enthronement of that same king that we considered this morning. Though we can't be 100% of the immediate context, we're pretty sure that the immediate context, the, what I mean by context, is what this psalm, the world that this psalm was originally written in, is 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13 to 16, where King David, you remember, brings in the Ark of the Covenant to Zion, that city on a hill, that city on a hill. And David, of course, led that triumphal entry with shouts of joy, wherein, um, a little bit like Charles yesterday, that white, uh, the basic minimum, as it were, he goes before the ark. And do you remember verse 12 to 15 of 2 Samuel 6? It's worth reading, just for us to understand the world in which the psalm was written. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. The trumpet, of course, being the Old Testament announcing that God is coming. God is coming. A joyful occasion and a joyful psalm, okay? 
And it gives us a little glimpse, not only into the liturgical life of ancient Israel, the way that they worshipped, but it also points forward to Jesus Christ. Two sections are suggested here. I, I, I think so. Uh, with the, the Selah there, the pause halfway. In the first, we see, we'll muse about climbing this holy hill and between verses 1 and 6. And then secondly, we'll consider the Lord who ascended for us. Verses 7 to 10. So even though the psalm is adorned in the language, in the world of the Old Testament, what we're seeing here is it's pointing forward to that wonderful moment which we celebrate around this time of year when our Lord and Saviour ascended. The work having been done. So, let's look at the first section between verses 1 and 6. The psalm begins in a proclamation, if you like, or um, confessing, like we've been doing already here this evening. Oh, the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Our God, like that modern hymn says, is a, a great, big God. That's very true. The original, apparently there, starts with, to the Lord the land belongs. It starts with God. High up, majestic creator, Unreachable almost, you know? Well, not almost. He's the founder and the one who establishes. And what we're seeing, you know, Mount Kailash, the Tibetans have all these different gods, don't they? Who compete in order to bring harmony. What well, we have here, our creator God, is one. One. That's the old testament for you i'm not a unitarian by saying that he is one he we we one god but three persons similarly in canaan they were the, the people were at the whims of the gods yeah you've got to understand that baal was celebrated because he brought calm and thunder and you know he was the weatherman if you like Oh, my friends, we are not at the whims of competing gods here tonight. We have a great God. And even though we are called to be careful stewards of the planet, the climate crisis and all these things we're hearing on the news, ultimately we can be assured that our creator God is in ultimate control. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? But with that comfort comes an apparent distance, doesn't it? I don't know, I feel a bit distant when I read those first two verses. But you see, he appears above the sea. He controls the waters. And even though he seems distant, oh, let's go on, shall we? There's a hint that we could approach. We could. God used the high places in Scripture to help, like children in school, you use visual aids. 
What am I talking about there? Well, there's no accident that God came down on mountaintops. Have you thought about that? I know I, this is something I enjoy, mountains, sorry. <laughs> but even the prophets were met on the mountaintops. Sinai and Elijah, Moses on Sinai, Elijah on Hebron. And even earlier in Genesis 2 verse 10, we have that image of Eden. The fellowship Adam enjoyed with God was elevated. Okay, if you look at the text closely, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided into four rivers. God is holy, holy, holy. He, he tells his ancient people that I am above you. I am above you. And after the fall, what a void was open. Yeah? Listen to one theologian here. These events indicate that God's place is far above ours. That to worship and commune with Him, we are to ascend beyond our own sphere, elevated by the mighty hand of God. It seems hopeless. But verse 1 does give hope. It reminds the reader that all who dwell on this planet are ultimately His. And that He longs to have communion again. You see, that elevated garden is what we're aiming for again. We can't get there in our own strength to walk with God face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, spiritual language, talking about proximity again to our lovely God. Oh, our sin bars us. But look how the poem moves on. Verse 3 to 4. Who shall ascend or climb the hill of the Lord who shall stand in his holy place. Hebrew poetry, always coming in two. Think of twins. <laughs> and between the two lines, one is emphasizing the previous. There's a hope here. There's a hope, a whisper, that we might be able to stand in that holy place again. That's what the book of Leviticus was all about, wasn't it? How an unholy people can come back into fellowship with a holy God. Don't avoid Leviticus. Important book. Paradise can be regained. Yes, God ordained to meet with His people in the holy tents. And the Ark of the Covenant denoted His presence, didn't it? The Ark comes to Zion. This is the original context. Zion is symbolic as the place where God's true people come to their God. I'll just read Hebrews for you. Hebrews 12. You are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. But hang on. How? <laughs> How? Because Isaiah says, doesn't he, who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? No man can see God and live. Where well, we get a response, don't we? In verses 4 to 6. I'm shooting through. 
But look, how? How is this possible? Well, it's very clear. Verse, verse 4, clean hands, suggesting blameless conduct. Pure heart, suggesting blameless, pure heart. It says what it says on the tin. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, not bearing false witness. These are echoes of the Ten Commandments, aren't they? That law. The law keeper can ascend. Oh, but I have filthy hands. My heart is impure. Yes, I'm saying my there, because yes, I, me, we can all say that. Not only do I lift up my soul to an idol, but Calvin says our very hearts are factories for idols. Again and again we make idols. Oh, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Read verse 5. <laughs> he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. The Lord is Savior God. It is He who has brought deliverance to us that blessing and a right standing before God can be received as a gift. As a gift, not achieved through human activity. Isn't that good news? So the first part ends with a people who have received righteousness that is not of their own. Does that ring any bells? A people who have received righteousness who are not of their own. Because ultimately, the one who can ascend is the one with clean hands, the one with a pure heart, the one who kept the law. That, oh, the one, the one. To experience the smile of God. Jesus Christ, you see. He, the image of the invisible God uh, he was revealed to us by tabernacling among us, but enables sinful creatures like me, like you, to enter God's holy presence and to experience the smile of his face. Hebrews 9, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. These are the true, those are the true Israelites. That's why it mentions Jacob there. Those who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. You see, we don't need to turn into a bird to ascend the mountain. We need to be united to Christ the one with clean hands, the one who kept the law, the greatest climber of all. Oh, it, it, it makes me really excited. And then we get to pause then, if that's too much for you. The, the writer 
very kindly puts in a Salah. Just like the Israelites who were redeemed from Egypt had a moment by the sea to stop and see the salvation of God. At this moment, are you a Christian yet today? You've heard again and again about the king, the king, the king. Have you bowed yet? Have you? Please, please bow. So we've thought about this hill that needs to be climbed, and we've spoken a little bit about the one who is the climber. But now let's zoom in. Part two, the Lord who ascended. Okay? From the time of Egypt, it was always whispered that God would be the one that would bring his people home. Okay? And the poem shifts his gaze now. So we're going over the sila or Selah, up to this phenomenal image of gateways and doors. We've been singing about it. Portals, entranceways. And Zion's hill is put before us. And an all-conquering saviour is coming towards the gates. This is the place where he would tabernacle with his people, Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem was a faint reminder of what would come. This is the place that anticipated the final rest where God would reside with his people, not like the form of the ark, and that could be stolen. No, this was a foretaste of being with his people forever. And perhaps most powerfully, this section reminds us of how our Lord ascended to the right hand of God the Father, smashing sin, smashing Satan, smashing death. And then he goes forth in victory. Look at verse 7. There's that proclamation. Lift your heads, O you gates. The language is lovely here. It's talking about the gates being lifted off their hinges, but also the watchmen. Look, you can, you, your, your heads can be lifted now. Don't look down. Don't look down. And more than that, he's coming, the one whose head was bowed for us. We don't want the king stooping as he comes through the gate. We want him riding through, don't we? And that's the image we're getting here. He's coming. He's coming. Now, you with babies know that when visiting grandparents, you have to phone ahead. <laughs> uh, I phone mom and dad, make sure the cat is out of the cot and make sure dad's car isn't blocking the way. Oh, don't forget the nappies, the toys, the dummy, the baby. And we, we go towards the west. <laughs> and it, my dad always jokes, he starts singing that ancient song, Mule Train. Mule Train, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> and we're coming. This is no mule train that we're reading about here. This is the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah. Oh, this isn't... Oh, these verses direct us to Jesus' entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. It's hard for us to comprehend it. Ezekiel saw something of this in chapter 44. Let me read it. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces towards the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened 
and no man shall enter by it. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. And Hebrews 9, verse 24, for Christ then has entered the holy place, isn't he? Into the heaven itself. Back in our text, the ascended king is called the king of glory. The king of glory, the king of glory, the king of glory. Five times. And like that arch in Paris, you've got that triumphal arch, haven't you, in Paris, which Yen and I scooted around on lime scooters, the ones you can rent. Christ won't be going round the city like a scootering adolescent, uh, no, 20-year-old. <laughs> no, he goes right through the gates. And that's very encouraging because we don't have to go around either. Our king went into battle, didn't he? Look at verse 8. I know we're moving quickly. There's a question. Who is this king of glory? And it tells us the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The, bat the battleground was Calvary. The enemy was a triumvirate of doom, flesh, death. And hell and Satan. That's the kind of enemy I can't face. You can't face. We need the champion. And you see, if you're not a Christian here tonight, how, how, how do you really think you're going to face that enemy on your own? A triumvirate. The flesh, hell, uh, Satan and death. I know I've mentioned four. Flesh, devil, and death. How can you face that on your own? It's hopeless. They're like Goliath, aren't they? That giant of old who was before the Jews, trespassing on God's land, challenging God's people, put, shaking his fist at God himself. None of the Jews could go down into the valley. None of them. And then David comes, the champion. Oh, that text, like I said in Wednesday night, that's not about finding my inner David. No, no. In Christ Jesus, we have a greater David. You see, the giant flesh which wars against the spirit will sentence you to eternal death. We need a man of war. We need a David to step in our place. For it is David who uttered, do you remember these words? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And we have one who is greater than David tonight. Do you realize that? A greater king. For when he died, he defeated death itself. Satan's kingdom was thrashed, wasn't it? You can imagine the chains being pulled with the devil and death and hell itself. Oh, my friends, he is the Lord of hosts, isn't he? <laughs> but let's come to the ascension. Because Luke, because there's whispers here, isn't there? More than whispers, shouts of his ascension. 
And Luke tells us at the end of Christ's time, do you remember, he blesses the, 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 the onlookers. He lifts up his hands, blessing the disciples like a, like a priest. And when he blesses them, he's parted from them and he goes up, doesn't he? He is carried up into heaven. Jesus, in his ascension as the Son of Man, receives his kingdom, which shall embrace the end of the earth. We don't talk about the ascension enough. The apostles promised the Holy Spirit, see Jesus taken up by the Father into the glory of heaven. Oh, He's the high priest who entered once and for all, isn't he? Into the holy places, into heaven itself. Have you seen that? But he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The ascension was that glorious passage from the earth into the presence of God. And Psalm 24 and Luke's accounts suggest that why we shouldn't get bogged down with the physics of the ascension, we mustn't think that it's holy spiritual, holy spiritual. A man, there's a man there, yeah? He's still a man. And that's really encouraging, all right? Because this wonderful event bridges our world with the next. And I'll tell you why it's encouraging in my conclusion now. Because the king of glory is our forerunner. We don't have to go around the hill forever. No, no. Listen to this quote. Moreover, we must bear in mind that all Jesus did is done in union with us. Wow. His people. We were in him as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. As he disappeared into the glory of God, so in union with him do all who believe go also. Are you going? Are you going up? Are you going up? This psalm tells us about an impossible climb. An impossible climb. But it tells us of a royal climber. A mighty man of war who didn't turn into a bird or cheat his way into glory. No, a man there is who lived that life of cleanliness, who died that death I deserve, who died not only the death I deserve, but died as my substitutes, who bore the wrath of God, who shielded us from that wrath that I brought to you this morning. He can shield you. He can shield you. But more than all of this, he is also our forerunner. Do you remember his words? I go to prepare a place for you. For where I am, he may be also. This is wonderful. We've, <laughs> we've considered the king today. One Calvinist in Methodist forefather had a dream before his conversion of a chariot hurtling past his village. His whole village was on fire. That sounds dramatic. It was a dream, but it had profound spiritual reality. And he realized he had to get on that coach. The door was open. You have to get on that coach 
or else he would be burnt. Do you see there's a royal court prepared for all? All who would come. Elijah had a golden chariot. We have a royal forerunner, a royal conqueror, one who prepared the way, who will woo us with irresistible grace if we are to enter that carriage, if you like. By the way, that man was saved the next morning after that dream. Have you trusted in the royal saviour? It's serious again tonight, but we've been musing on the King of Kings, the one who is the anointed one, the chosen set King of God. But he's not just anointed, is he? He's ascended. It means something for you and for me. If we're in Christ, we too will go through that arch, as it were, we too will, we will not ascend like he did, perhaps, but we will go to that place prepared for us. That's the guarantee of the gospel. Listen to this old prayer. Grant, we beseech the Almighty God, that like as we do believe the only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to have ascended into the heavens, so we may also in heart and mind, thither ascend, and with him continually dwell, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Bow the knee, my friends, for he is the anointed king, he is the king who has ascended. May you see him for who he really is tonight. For his name's sake, amen. We'll sing uh, about the battle uh, in Eden, sad indeed that day. My countless blessings fled away. My crown fell in disgrace. But on victorious Calvary, that crown was won again for me. My life shall all be praised. Faith, see the place, see the tree where heaven's prince instead of me was nailed to bear my shame. Bruised was the dragon by the sun, though two at wounds their conquered one. And in Welsh, ac iesi oedd e Jesus was his name. Let's sing together 542.
Father in heaven, we praise thee indeed for Jesus Christ, our champion. Uh, we are just amazed that uh, he has done what we could never do, uh, that uh, we don't have to fumble and uh, wander around, uh, but that he has entered the holiest, having defeated death, hell, Satan, sin, and all our enemies. And blessed be his name that we are joined to him. And we just like little starlings on the back of an eagle. And we're just asking, O oh God, that thou will bear us up. Uh, bear us up now as we come to this thy table. Uh, give us a sight, O oh Saviour, of thy wondrous love to us. Uh, may we see beyond the veil. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 